episode six. Oh my god, already. We are so excited. I'm so excited, Lena. Rachel, why don't you introduce our VIP guest? Oh my god, it is with great honour and pleasure to announce that our guest today is Hibbo. Just to let you know a little bit about her, Hibbo is a wife, a mother and a FGM activist and she's also an author. Her desire is to spread awareness of FGM and that came about after she suffered a horrific experience at just six years old. Yeah. Yes, her testimonials and campaigning work have made her one of Britain's most prominent campaigners about FGM and she has appeared in numerous publications including The Telegraph and the BBC. We are super delighted and honoured to have you here Hebo. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. It's really is. Um, I love when I hear from my midwives because um, I have an extra special love for you lot because you, especially the younger midwives these days, they're going up, you know, above and beyond their job to find out about FTM, wanting to help uh, the women, how to engage, how to work with them. So I'm extremely very, very proud of midwives. Oh, thank you so much. But honestly, we are mostly grateful for you because, you know, we can do our own independent research and read about FGM, but hearing it from your personal experience in your book truly inspires us to want to do more to help resolve the epidemic. Yeah, I think uh, for me, when I was having children back in 1990s up to 20, 2007 was, still it wasn't discussed. No one asked me about it. No one had a, any sort of engagement on that on me. And I put it down to, you know, professionals being afraid to ask, being feeling maybe they're intruding on my culture or something like that. I don't know. They just didn't have the confidence to ask me about it. And for me, that really, really affected me. And I was thinking, you are all professionals. It's your duty to ask difficult questions. Why aren't you not asking me that questions? And uh, I wasn't open either because it was, if you're not going to talk to me, I'm not going to talk. So that was the way I was. And in, in, in honestly, I wasn't even in a position to talk about it anyway. But I know that had somebody started that conversation for me way back, I would have opened up. I wouldn't have not left it, you know, you know, put me in a deep, deep depression for so many years. So having that first contact and somebody having the courage to ask you, is a great way to start talking about this. And you're right, it is the healthcare professional's duty to ask these questions. And as comfortable as it may be for us, it will be 10 times more uncomfortable for someone like you. I'm not gonna lie, when I first qualified as a midwife, I fumbled on my words, like on how I asked women. Um, after lots of experience, I now find that it just rolls on the tip of my tongue. I ask about other things that help us build a report, which makes it loads easier to talk about these things. Um, these days, I do find women are more willing to talk about it openly. Yeah, because one thing that most of the professionals, still some of them today don't understand is, this woman is just a human being like you. And, uh, and most women will tell you when there's another woman asking a question in a certain way, it actually makes you feel you want to open, you want to talk. You don't see the color, you don't see the race, you see a fellow woman. That's just something that we, or us women have, is that connection of you're a woman, I'm a woman, it doesn't matter what you are, but we know that connection that we are a woman. And if somebody asks them in a, in a way that is a human 
at the same time, it's a professional way, both combined together, both hats combined together. It, it's, it's, a, it's an easy way to make that woman talk. And most of the women, you're right, they wanna talk. If anybody asks them in a nice, you know, in a, in a, in a humanity way, as well as professional way, it's your job to know that. But it's a very difficult question to ask to a grown woman and say, are you cut? It's a very difficult. So you're gonna have to work out a way to bring that conversation without you coming out with the first thing when you see her is, are you cut without you doing that? Talk to the person, say, hello, how are you? How was your day? What did you do today? Open that line of you know, uh, conversation flowing between you two and say, you know what? I really am interested in this. And you come from that communities. Do you want to talk to me about this? Do you want to tell me what you know about it? I guarantee you 99% out of 100, you will get a conversation flowing. Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, for us, we've been midwives for almost five years now. As you said, it comes with experience on how to approach the questions. However, there is a fear around that question. And for me personally, you know, initially my biggest fear was judgment. I was so afraid that when I would ask questions such as um, if you if you had a girl, would you follow the same tradition? And I would always be scared that she would feel like I've assumed something that she had no intention of doing. You know, just by looking at her facial expression, I can see clearly that it's not something that she would do. But as time's gone on, I can now understand that these questions are put in place to protect the children and hopefully more awareness can improve the epidemic. Yeah, you, I, I, I actually feel like you lot are in a very, very, you know, in a hard situation where you are in a woman's place when she's most vulnerable and, you know, when she's most exposed, when everything for her is alive and kicking. Her trauma especially is literally, she's living in that trauma while she's giving birth and being in that area. She knows what's about to take place. Trauma takes over your head. And then a professional comes out of nowhere and says, okay, you're gonna cut your daughter without having a conversation, asking you how you are. That's what I get. The women that I work with, they always tell me that is what throws them out. That in, a, in this scenario where they feel very, very vulnerable and the professional comes out with that sort of question, that's not the time to ask that question or the way you ask is very, very wrong. So for me, it's, um, it's always how this professional treats their patient is the most important part. And it's always more than FGM. You open a door to FGM and there's hundreds of other doors connected to it because this person have normalized the pain of FGM and everything. She doesn't see it as a problem anymore because she's made a part of life. She has other more pressing problems for her. So she needs somebody to make her aware. Hang on, you can't just you know brush this aside. You've been doing that for years and years and years. Take a breathe. Take a, you know, take a deep breath, sit down, just tell me what was that like? Or do you want to talk about that? Because I'm genuinely interested in knowing what is this and how it's affected women. Yeah, like as you're speaking, it kind of reminded me just now of the um, antenatal pregnancy book that we have in the initial appointment. Mm. You know, with FGM, it is kind of like a list. So what I mean by that is we do have medical questions where we'd go um, through a list and they are alphabetical order so you'd have an A, admissions to A&E and it would continue to go down the list until you get to F which is FGM yeah. um, and it does make you question that you know 
women are not going to take to it so well if we ask them as a list of a question of a medical history mm-hmm. that maybe it should have its own separate page yes you're right Rachel it's much more deeper than that isn't it yeah like I wonder if we could speak to whoever does the guidelines and yeah dedicating a page to FGM that's true because it needs more sensitivity yeah, I think so too. The, uh, the thing about the list, I'm so glad you brought up that because when a woman comes from these communities and there's a midwife or a doctor sitting asking questions, she already knows what's coming, which yeah. means she's already anticipated. She's already boiling from inside of why you didn't come out and just talk to me nicely instead of going such a long route to come to that. So for them, they always say stupid um do they think i don't understand what's coming why can we not have this conversation you know in a in an open way why um does it have to disguise it through other routes for you to come and ask that question so they they do give good good reasons on why that shouldn't be happening and um as i said it's actually an easy question to ask if you really combine your professional heart and your humanity heart it's a really really great question to ask and it's actually relieve that woman but also the hindsight to that is this woman might have nobody might ever asked her about this and this is the first time she's actually disclosing her trauma then what you do with that because you can't just unpack somebody and then leave them to go and say okay i've got my information see you later you can't do that you have to have a follow-up you have to make sure this woman gets proper you know support in in place there's many things also involved and that is almost 90% not followed. They make the woman talk and they've got what they wanted. And that's it. It's like, that's it. You wouldn't do that to a rape victim when you've asked them about rape and they said, yes, I have been raped. You're not going to leave it like that. You're going to be, you know, following up with services and all the sort of things that's open for them and all those things. But horrifically, Afiyam is, you, you ask a lady, she tells you what, what happened to her and mostly she's left to her own devices, which is, not productive no. for anyone, not for you, not for her. It's like you're stripped raw and then you're left there naked. Exactly, exactly. One said it was like somebody ripped a wound open, you know, a bandage off, put the chili to it, and then let me, you know, let me go with that pain. That was her description of how she felt afterwards, after she completely opened to the medic and they didn't offer her any services. So I don't want that to, to be happening to the women. They have to be treated like anybody else, the way you would treat, you know, sexual assault, all those things, all the horrific things that come through your door when they, you know, women or men disclose it. You have a duty to follow it up with other services and all that. But some of the women don't get that. Yeah, in our trust, um, in our hospital, we have a special midwifery team and they are dedicated specifically to women who have suffered with FGM. And um, when they disclose it at the initial booking appointment, we do offer support to them and offer to do the referral. Um, and then they do get followed up if they if they choose that path. Yeah. Uh, there's something about, yeah. how, how do they take up the uh, emotional support and psychological support? Most of them, do they take it up? Because we're finding that they don't. One thing, one thing we found out because I have been working with the clinic. Actually, we established it back in 2014. Uh, Lotus Clinic in Whipstross is women, especially from the practicing communities. We do not know anything about therapy. We don't want to sit in front of somebody and talk about business. But put them in a group, bring tea and all junk, 
they are talking about the most traumatic events in their life as if it is nothing while they're sipping tea. That is how they are. That is how uh, they're comfortable in. It's a group therapy. So we have seen group therapy is the way to go forward. And uh, I, I don't know about other trusts, but we're trying to convince uh, uh, Bart Trust to commission that rather than doing one-to-one because it's, in the intake is extremely low. Yeah, that's we 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 are part of Bart's trust. <laughs> Bart. Ah, you are amazing. <laughs> you know what, Hebo, Rachel and I, we were educated about FGM at uni, um, but reading your book has opened our eyes and it has led us into your world completely. Before I even met you or knew you, I felt like I was already your friend um, from reading this book. I felt like I connected with you in some kind of way. I mean let's be honest, it's a very devastating read and it is heartbreaking, but it's so vital. And I feel it should be compulsory for all student midwives to read your book. That must've been super hard to write. Oh my goodness. Um, I never dreamed of writing a book in the first place. I talk a lot on Twitter, quite a lot. I'm very vocal. Um, I think somebody called me three years ago, Gobi Shite, and I adapted that <laughs> very much. Um, so there was a ghostwriter who was following me on Twitter. I didn't know she was a ghostwriter at that time. And um, she just was following me for three years. And one day she just wrote me a, a direct message. And she said, um, I want to write a book about FGM. And I don't want to write about anybody else but you. And I said, no, there's other people who talk about this. And her, her response to that was, yes, the language they use and the language you use are quite different. When I read about your story and everything, I feel like I'm with you, with your journey. That's what she said. And I really want to write about your book. So I said, oh, okay, I'll think about it. Didn't reply to her for a few weeks. Then she came back. She said, you're taking too long, please. <laughs> and I was like, to her, wow, okay. So I invited her to the school. I was a teaching assistant. She came, we met, and we just connected straight away how down to earth she was, lovely. And then she told me, actually, the book is, is going to be commissioned as she said, 100%, I'm sure it's going to be commissioned by Simon & Schuster. All I could think about was who are Simon & Schuster? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I came home, so my daughter is a bookworm, and I said to her, what is a Simon & Schuster? She looked at me, she went, oh, mom, please don't say what is a Simon & Schuster. They're the <laughs> biggest publishers in UK. <laughs> are you, what are you doing with them? And I said, oh, they want to write a book about my... She went, are you kidding me? And I said, yeah but I haven't decided that she was, yeah, 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 you have, say yes. <laughs> and um, we did, and we were literally glued up together for, for seven months. I'm not good at writing, I'm good at talking, but I'm not in terms of, you know, what you call it, um, grammar and spelling, I'm horrific at that. And uh, she was the one who taping and writing the, my, my words, but the contract that I had with them was, my story is going to be my words, no fancy words, no, you, will you turn in my word into something else? My words have to stay the way I say it. And kudos to her, she stayed with that. And the whole story of me talking about everything is my own words. And the rest, I said, you can go bonkersly as professional as you want. And um, that book, I, I honestly, I never ever thought that I will sit down and just revisit every little corner of my life, which was the hardest, hardest part because writing, you know, tweets and stuff, I can just hide some of them. I didn't have to go every little detail, but the book, I have to literally 
go back to myself as a six-year-old and literally look through the window and uh, look at myself. And that was horrific journey to, re to, to do that, but it was also a therapeutic for me. And, um, but extremely the hardest thing I've ever done, I would say, really, to write that book was very hard. Yeah, wow. No, I honestly generally could not imagine what you've been through. Mm. Honestly, like you're very inspirational to me and um, I do truly want to say thank you for coming on. You know, when Nina first suggested it, she um, had already read your book and she had, you know, said to me, like, why don't you just read it and we can ask her to come on the podcast. You know, you speak about your daughter being a bookworm and I can tell you now I am the complete opposite. <laughs> you are. I cannot read a book at all i'll read one chapter five times and it will still not go in um but i can genuinely honestly say reading your book word from word from your experience really truly touched me and it made me just want to keep reading mm. parts of your book when you mention about you finding out you had fgm by you know translating an english book word for word with a dictionary it made me really reflect because i was like wow so many women I've asked the question, what type of FGM do you have? And they look at me so blankly and I find myself on the internet, you know, finding the different types, showing them the pictures, mm. questioning what one they had. And now hearing from you, I generally don't think they had any idea what I was talking about. No, they don't. Please do not ever assume. They actually know what type they had, don't assume that. Yeah. And in the clinic, we have seen women who said that we've had type one, and then the doctor checks them out and it turns out that they've had type three because that is what their community say is type one, which is type three, which is not. So don't ever assume they actually know what happened to them. They don't. Yeah. And uh, it's quite, quite painful for a woman to come in and say, oh, I've had the sunna, which is type one. And then the doctor checks and say, actually, no you've had type three and it's a quite a shocker when they told how horrific this is and and then they start to tell you what was it like having period for them how they struggle all that but there was no more part of their life they never you know took it up and said anything because in our communities we're not allowed to talk about you know what's coming out of your genitals anything like that it's like a taboo thing no so many of the women actually do not know exactly what type they have so don't ever assume they know what they what they've had yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been a big lesson because I've assumed this whole time. Yeah. And even after five years' experience reading your book, I've still managed to learn something that I shouldn't <laughs> be doing. We all learn. There's always room for improvement. Yeah. Lessons to be learned. It is. It is. And for me, when I tell people my English is self-taught, they just look at me and I look at what? You taught yourself English? I'm like, yep, where there's a will, there's a way. Oh, yeah. I was a determined, a determined human being. To, to know what that was. And um, that journey, I think me and my son, uh, we just became friends with that library. It was around my corner of my house. And every morning we just eat breakfast and we just go. And it was just like always on the go, trying to find out. But yeah, that gave me a way out of learning, you know, teaching myself English, which was amazing journey. But it's not for, not everybody will do that. Wow. Not everybody will do that. But for me, it was a, I don't know, maybe it was a journey written for me to go through it. I don't know, I just felt I need to find out those initials, three letters, what, what were they? And uh, I felt they were significant because it's written in capital letters. And it was like, I need to figure it out, what are they? And um, that journey was a self-discovery for myself. And uh, 
the biggest shocker for me was, I thought it only happened in my country. And then to find out there is many other countries and there's a many women like me, it was absolutely relieving. It was, I felt like relieved. And I felt sad at the same time thinking, oh my God, how many you know, women and girls have undergone this? How many women are like me? And it, it kind of turned me into lunatic for a bit because every woman I saw on the road that looked like me or comes from these countries, I would look and I would just think in my head, is she like you? Is she different to you? Is she it just gave me that uh, a sense of being extra alert on people around me. So it was an amazing journey. But I think even from reading your book, even as a six-year-old, you were very aware and very inquisitive from the beginning. You were asking all the right questions. And I do think this is why you are the woman you are today. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I drove my mom crazy because <laughs> I was full of questions. And she used to tell me, I don't know what I was drinking when you when I was pregnant with you. Why did you ask so many questions? <laughs> and I always tell her, why not? And she would say, there you are. I asked you a question, you reply with a question. Um, I, I, I don't know, I just felt all of uh, my um, immediate family. We were well off family in Somalia. So we lived in a massive villa where the whole extended family lived together. And I just felt like women had a one role men had a different look that was so clear to see as day and night really was and it was like they kept constantly cooked cleaned non-stop and these men constantly went out came back for lunch went out came back for dinner you know their clothes were washed ironed everything that and i used to think why <laughs> i was sitting next to my mom and i'm like why do you all do that and she's like do what you cook and clean all the time <laughs> And she would say, that's what women do. We look after, you know, your dad. And I'm like, no, that's what not, I don't want to do that. Uh -huh. And she, she said, people, we all do. And I say, yeah, but not me. I was very adamant. It's not me. Six years old. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she will look at me and she will say, even when her friends come over, I distinctly remember every time her friends come over women, she will just send me some else, give me money. She said, go, because... I'll be sitting there absorbing everything they say, yeah. pretend I'm not hearing. And then when they go, all the questions come up. What does she mean by this? What does she mean her husband go, her husband married another woman? Does that mean daddy can marry another woman? Uh. <laughs> so I was full of questions. She nurtured that side of me. She really did. But she just didn't want other people to know how uh, inquisitive I was. So um, I was uh, very much shielded from going to people, places and stuff because I would always have a question and I didn't have a filter as a young child. Children, they don't have a filter. I would just come out with it and say it, yeah. Yeah, no filter is the best way, but you know, you was only six years old. I have a niece that is eight years old and I cannot even comprehend this stuff happening to her. Oh my God, it was horror. I would say horror, a life. I felt like the whole life of mine was um, not real. I felt the whole love and nurture that I was given not real. I felt like, you know, um, alone. I felt really alone. How How is it that I was loved so much and then within minutes that disappeared completely? How was that? I couldn't comprehend because it was something that I asked for because I didn't know what that was being bullied at school, I had to come and ask my mom and she agreed to say, okay, you will be cut. They didn't know what that meant because these girls never showed anything, never said anything. 
they were healthy, they were happy, they were jumping. And I just thought, what was it that I didn't because a six-year-old being bullied like that, they will want to be part of those people who bully them sometimes because they feel like they're not doing something right. Or for me, it was that. And then to my mom to say yes, and then followed by massive, you know, uh, amazing party that I got all sorts of dresses. And then the next the next time it is you are in a you know horror hat. It was just uh, something that I did not never in a million years expected that to happen to me. And uh, for me. It's something I really, really, really wish to erase from my heart and my mind and my memory, which I can't. It's extremely fresh. I feel like sometimes it, it, it make, it's like I was cut yesterday. I can't escape it. It's there 24-7. I live with it. And for a child who trusts their parents so much and then being held down while your parents, the one that's your protector, is standing there, being held down, your legs literally pulled apart and then they rip your flesh like you are a dead animal that doesn't feel pain. It's the worst thing ever. It is the worst thing. And the pain with that is just unimaginable. It's um I always say I always say like you're 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 engulfed I don't think there's bigger word than that. Literally, you are engulfed from head to toe. The pain is too much. You can't even breathe. You really can't breathe because you're trying to breathe through that and you can't because you are hit with million cut over and you know your head, it is million cut over and over and over. And by the time if they finish with you, you just, I don't know what I was after that. It was my whole body was gone, protesting so much, shaking so much, bouncing off the mat. It was horrific. It really was horrific. And for me, living with that memory and talking about it almost on a daily basis has become me. It's the way I use it to educate people, is to raise awareness, is to, to make women understand you are you are a human being like me and you are part of this and it's your business to know to help humanity it's your business to you know to say i want to get involved it's your business to say uh, to pass the religion and the color and the dressing and the gender whatever all those things pass all those things and be part of uh, you know protecting young innocent girls because this is done because you're a girl we were done like this because we were girls, simple as that. And uh, to be left with a lifetime of problems, to be left, some of my friends can't have children. They're left in, you know, infertile because of the damage done to them. They have taken so many rights away from us. They have violated in, in us in million ways. Your body, your mind, your soul is all, all, scarred and wounded so for me if it means that i have to repeat my story a million times to educate people in order to end it so be it so be it we all are we all are we all women are amazing and beautiful and in my world amazing force of nature and everything else that i say yeah yeah Can I share a story actually just remembered this i'm from the middle east when I went home in 1997 and I have older cousins 
and I remember, and I don't know why, I just remembered this. You know, girls talk, we're cooking, clean, washing rice, um, culture a bit similar to yours. And my cousin was talking about her marriage. She was very happy, she had children. And then she spoke about her childhood and in Kurdish, we call it khatana. And I didn't know at seven years old what that meant. And I, she was trying to explain it to me because she was very open about it, but I couldn't comprehend what she was saying. And I said, why did your parents do this? She said, because they thought that I was a very active uh, young lady and they were worried about my virginity. So they did this to me. And like now thinking about that story, I look at it and I think of it completely different. I did when I was seven years old. Yeah. Gosh, I'm so, so emotional. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. It is a very emotional topic. And uh, many of the women, many of the girls, they literally, one thing that really makes me uh, most upset is these communities, all of them, all of them say clitoris is the worst. They are literally removing the clitoris to stop you being active to stop your pleasure to stop this and that yet most of them are religious people and my question for them is if you believe in god and god has created us all you know beautiful every part yes why do you think my clitoris is evil why would you think that it has a purpose it has a purpose why are you doing that but the, all of them comes down to controlling women and girls sexuality but then again men what what are you getting really when you a woman is that kind of damage is done to her. What are you getting? Are you like that uh, insecure about yourself that you want a woman that to be done to them? If you're not insecure about yourself, why are you not being vocal? Why are you not being vocal and saying, stop doing this to the girls? Don't you not want a human being who's as equal to you in terms of enjoying each other's you know, intimacy? Don't you not want that? Why do you want a woman who's been disturbed and every time she's intimate with you, doesn't even bother to feel anything because her trauma is too great. Why? So men have a massive role to play in our communities. They have to have the courage to speak about this and say no. Most of them don't because they say, well, talking about women issue is, is not for me. It's a human right issue. Just like you want your human right issue to be you know, intact. We need to be that way too. So there is a education that need to go on for the men. Men also do not understand the severity and how it impacts women in terms of FTM, but they do understand two things about it, which is when they're intimate, my wife doesn't enjoy it. When there's having a children, my wife is suffering. And I think those two things should be enough for you, enough for you to say, not in my name. But sadly, not many of them are vocal. Yeah, I think the driving force definitely does need to come from men, to be honest. They do need to stand up. Um, you know, it's hard to hear you and Lena speak about your experiences because for me, I come from a white British background. My grandparents are white British, their grandparents are white British. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've never been exposed to anything like this until my midwifery training. And the same with my friends, like they're not midwives. And, you know, when we speak about it in our group chat, because I mentioned I read your book, they had some knowledge, but you know to what extent do they actually know what goes on because I'm learning even now reading your book and it does truly make you think you know what else can be done to spread awareness mm. 
you know, I think a lot of education would go a long way. Mm. As you said, there's many women out there that we probably don't even know about that's gone through such a horrible event in their life. Yeah. By people knowing, you know, maybe walking past someone in the street, we might be more aware of what they've possibly gone through and just acting with a bit of kindness. Obviously, you should be kind anyway, but, you know, a small smile might make the world of a difference to them. You know, there's no denying that this subject is a sensitive subject. But I do find, you know, we are more open these days. What do you personally think the main problem with people speaking out is? Yeah, the thing is, everybody is afraid of women's body parts. Yeah. Especially when it comes to genitalia, they're extremely afraid of it. Yet, it's our, gen- it's our vagina that is most sought after, trafficked, women killed for it, women controlled for it. Humanity comes out of it. It's a portal, it's a pleasure, it's everything, you name it. It is, yet they're so afraid when it comes to talking about it. And I think because of that, it prevents many people not wanting to understand it. Plus, FGM is an extremely sensitive subject. Some consider it to be gross, you know, disgusting. And and that is the language I get when I'm teaching secondary school, which is proper language for them. As an adult, as an adult, you can't close your eyes and say, oh, it's far from me. I'm not doing it. It's never far from you. You're human. I'm a human. It's not far from you. It's affecting another human being. It can never be far from you. What's hurting another humanity should be your business to know it, however difficult it is. And it's, it, 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 I, I, I don't like when people say, oh my God, it's too, it's too hard. I can't hear it. All the abuses, forget about FGM, all the cruel abuses that are out there, they're still thriving because of the secrecy around it. We remove that, we actually have a chance to end it all. If we all became brave people and start discussing what is really, really, you know, uncomfortable to talk about, we have a, 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 a would you call it, a way to end all that. And that is called educating people. We empower people with education, but people also have to have a desire to come out of their comfort zone and learn about what's disturbing others. Yeah, and they need to start by reading your book. Yeah, definitely. Everyone needs to read that book. <laughs> yeah, that book is a movie coming up. Mm-hmm. Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be starting auditioning soon, I think, when everything else opens up. Yeah, I haven't digested it yet. That I refuse incredible. to digest it yet. It's too much. <laughs> but yeah, there is a movie coming up. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. Good it's- stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll, I request it, please. If you get Denzel Washington, I can play myself. Yeah. <laughs> I can play myself. Oh, if you get Idris Alba, that's even bonus. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, be your, we'll be your number one fans. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate and I really can't wait to see um, who we get for actors and actresses. I'm very, very um, excited about that. Yeah. So yeah, the little book that I thought is never going to go anywhere. It has become this book. Uh, I was la- last night giving a seminar lecture style to um, uh, Chelmsford University, Chelmsford, wow. and um, it was amazing. The the lady who um, booked me and the lecturer said, in all the time that she's been there for years, she's never had one lecture where the whole of the campus, every sector was attended. Wow. <laughs> that was so lovely. And after that, I was inundated with messages on 
Instagram, I couldn't keep up. So all this morning, all I did was, I'm those pa- one person that will reply every single message. Yeah. I do that. So uh, I was doing that, but I'm blessed. I really am blessed of people wanting to know more people asking me, uh, you know, to talk and all that. So I'm, I'm, I'm on a great, great journey that it has become world, worldwide movement. And uh, that has been an amazing, yeah. I bet your kids are really proud of you. For sure. They are. They are very proud. And uh, I'm, I'm vice versa. I'm extremely proud of them. They're an amazing bunch. Mom of seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pop them up like a popcorn, I know. This is just... Some boys. Four boys and three girls. My oldest is a doctor, and uh, I have a, an, yeah another uh, another boy who's a computer scientist, and then a girl who's 24 years old, just started working at the prison office uh, prison to be a uh, what do you call therapist. Yeah, and <laughs> I've got a 19 year old who's doing chemical engineering in Imperial, and then I've got my other three babies, 18 year old, 14 and 15. So yeah, very busy house. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're all jobs that um, help people, aren't they? When you think about it. Yes. And don't forget, my retirement is somewhere hot and nice. So yes. <laughs> well deserved. <laughs> yes. But Havo, I really want to know: Have you ever been back to your hometown? No, no, I have never been, and I'm never dreaming of going back because um, Somalia. I miss my country badly. It's the it's extremely beautiful country with golden suns and people are absolutely brilliant. But we have been having civil war last 30 years and we have so many factions, fractions going on everywhere. And specifically, there's a really this religious group that kills women. If any woman tries to be MP or anything, they just kill her. It's simple as that. Women have been been killed so many times. And I'm very vocal and I'm on the television all the time in Somalia. I'm very well known for my work back home. So I wouldn't be daring to go back there. No, no, no. Um, how old did you say your oldest child was? He's going to be 30 this year. Wow. Yeah. So just going, um, you know, and obviously some questions are very personal. So please don't feel like you need to answer. But yeah. you know, your first child 30 years ago and you said your youngest is four. Is it 14? 14. Do you feel like um, in terms of maternity questions yeah. you ask, were asked 30 years ago compared mm. to the questions that you were asked 14 years ago? Do you yeah. think there's been a positive shift in those? okay 14 years ago they did not ask me about fgm but the care was great the care was great they did take care of me very well they didn't ask me any question about fgm but they were extremely attentive extremely looking after me they were worried about infections and all that so they really really looked after me in terms of 30 years ago oh my god that was the worst birth i was (laughs) giving birth it was just I became this animal in a zoo. That's what I became 30 years ago where, and I will never, ever, ever blame the midwives. I really wouldn't because I don't think she was prepared to what she saw and she just couldn't hide her shock. She couldn't hide it and went out and got other doctors. And you know, when your legs are restrained because you're in labor, you know, they shuffle your legs up and everybody was in, out, in, out, in, out. And I just felt like, wow, couldn't speak language as well either. So it was like, 
why it's, it's just I'm, I'm i'm an animal in a zoo that's what i felt and it was it brought back all of horrific things in that scenario where i was seeing everybody as my cat and literally went in different worlds of my own until my husband came in and and then he was trying to calm me down because i was screaming my language he didn't speak either english as well but he was telling people out 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 and it was it was horrific and really really suffered after that badly suffered there was too many tears and ended up having at least seven eight months i couldn't even sleep on in a sit on my bottom properly it was horrific it was horrific horrific yeah and after that i had six kids <laughs> but i think but i think when i had my second one it was i was so overcome with worries of what's going to happen to me I ended up having constant headache, which really turned into something serious. My blood pressure was up and um, they did a scan and they said that my uh, brain pressure was up. So they had to do lumpa puncture every other day from 24th week to 35 weeks. I was in uh, Bart's hospital. They uh, took me from Wits to Bart's hospital. They, every other day, they will put something in my eye to make me blind to go and do a scan. It was really, really bad. And in the end, they decided on the 35 weeks, they decided to, to, to do a C-section because they said they couldn't give me any medication, anything like that. So I really, really suffered with the second pregnancy, purely brought on by my own worries, which again, it was never discussed. Again, they never asked me my trauma of giving birth. Nobody asked me that. And it was um, constantly worried and then, after that, I, don't, I didn't give birth for a long time. Then I gave birth to my daughter, which was a vaginal de delivery. This time was a bit better. Midwives knew what, would, what they're dealing with. And from then on, I was using the sweeps cross where midwife knew my, my, uh, my situation and they were prepared to help me deliver safely. So I was delivered safely after that, but no discussion whatsoever about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, something that sticks out um, from your book and as you're speaking now, you know, you talk a lot about trauma and yeah. I feel like throughout your entire life, I'm sure you've had periods where you've had amazing like things that have happened to you, which are not trauma, but from a child at six, year old, six years old, you had trauma, then yeah. you've grown into an adult. The first birth was traumatic. Mm -hmm. Then you yeah. go to the second birth and it's traumatic. And yeah. you go through all these lives where you experience so much trauma, but yet yeah. you sit here with a smile on your face, spreading your story. Yeah. And I just want you to know that throughout your trauma and things that you've gone through, you're probably going to impact other children and other adults to, mm. you know, like speak out more and spread awareness. And I genuinely believe that the amount of number of people having this will reduce because of you and your book. Yeah, what I want is people to know that. For me, the reason I share all this is I'm not a strong or brave person. I'm not all that things. I just want people to know. I don't want people to experience what I've experienced. And I don't want them, if you have experienced a trauma of any sort, I don't want it to let you define you, control you, consume you. I don't want it to do that. I want you to be able to talk about it if I can sit in front of you and discuss, you know, discuss the most inner demons of me and what I went through. I am hoping that will give you a glimmer of a strength or a huge strength for you to start tackling yourself because it's, it's extremely important. 
extremely important to acknowledge your, your trauma, acknowledge it, then figure it out. Do I need to use it to create change or do I need just to move on with your life and just be a, a, you know, the person that you always were? So for me, it was about that because I let it you know, consume me for over three decades. And then coming out of that, it was, you've taken a lot of chunk of my life. I'm going to give it back and I'm going to fight back and I'm going to use the thing that really caused me all that pain I'm going to use it to create change. So for me, it was all about that. You are incredible. And I think it, it helps that you have a very supportive husband. Yes, we he's amazing. <laughs> he's lovely. He's, uh, I, I don't think I'll be where I am today without his support. He was my personal therapist all these years. If I wanted to scream, I would scream for him. If I wanted to, he was just constantly there, never judging me, never nothing but just kept on loving me more and more and more and more. Even when I said I'm ugly, I'm this and that, he will always say, no, you're not. You're beautiful. You're a complete woman. You're not all the things that you're saying. He just made sure that I had it loud and clear of what I am. And I think that has made an impact on me as well. You know, and in your book, when we read it, there's the words brave that was used. Mm. And me and Nina spoke about it before the podcast, how I was not wanting to say that word. <laughs> You know, they called you brave for having your FGM. Yeah, I, I hated brave. that word. Yeah, I hate it now as well. No, I don't hate it now, though, but I hated it for such a long time because I thought, what is the point of calling somebody brave when it's that word that is used to cause pain for you? So for me, I always associated it with pain and horrificness. But I tell my kids, you're brave when they did that. So I don't see it that way anymore because... Once you start to unpack yourself and you go through yourself piece by piece, you start to see your words, the words that you thought caused you pain is actually not. It's the way and the content that it was used that caused you pain. So for me, Brave, I've come, you know, um, to love it again, to use it again. So I'm very, very, uh, yeah, I'm friends with Brave right now. Yeah, I'm glad you're friends with Brave. But um, we know that FGM is a medieval practice um, which is still carried out now in the 21st century. But I'm curious, what do you think the future for FGM looks like? Future. I see future, you know, free of FGM. I literally see that. I dream of that. I believe in that. I believe that through education, we will see this nightmare end. Our youth are amazing. When this information is exposed to them, they grow up saying, no, I'm not cutting my kids. I'm not doing this. And we will see the end of it within generations. I wholeheartedly believe we will see end of it. We just need to ramp up the education in terms of education our youth, especially starting from primary school, that's where they're at the highest risk. So for me, educating the adults to help the, the ones who've already undergone FGM, FGM and educating our youth is a key to be ending it. Do you work alongside teachers as well? I work alongside so many professionals, yeah. teachers of all sorts, colleges, you know, professors, all this, health professionals, left, right, center, you know, charities. I work other countries as well. So I do work with, I'm a very broad person that anybody who contacts me with me, I always work with them because I believe in coalition. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. And I think yeah. that's why you've succeeded so much. <laughs> 
um i don't know i just feel like sometimes um did i really i uh, am i on this place am i this person am i this and that it's amazing because right now i think i've just ignited womenhood around the globe and i have got no idea how i did that i was just ranting on a video and that has gone viral and i think almost 200 people viewed that video within five days um the word i'm a woman get over it has just become a slogan Yes, and I like that. and I really um don't know. I think I've given women green light to say it's okay to say I'm a woman. You are a woman. Why do you need to change that language? So I think that has unleashed global phenomena that I don't know how to take that in. I really don't know. And um, yeah, so uh, I think I always said on Twitter, women. I always repeated and said, you know, women united is a force of nature. Please know that. Please take advantage of that. Support each other. Well. I haven't dreamed of this response, never dreamed of this kind of response. And um, I'm still taking it in. I really am taking it in, yeah. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. We feel so proud to have you as a fellow woman. Yeah. Yeah, we are women. We are amazing. Yeah, women though, like as you said in your book, you know, a lot of the um, education and um, change needs to also come from men. Yes. It does. I think men have a major, major role to play to end actually all sorts of violence. We need we need men to call violence against women out as it is. We need them to be vocal about that. They're not. Majority of them are not. Majority of them don't get involved. They leave the women to do all the work. They leave the women to fight for our rights. Why should we? Why are you not fighting alongside us for our rights? Because it's women. It's, it's, it's a men led world which means women are always, you know, the back of the line, women's right, everything is the back of line, all in front are men. So for me, I, I feel like men have a major role to play. They are game changers and they need to be on board. You know, and we know there's a huge change with the law as well. Like mm. obviously something this serious can go to court. Yeah. Um, but you know, just like other serious things such as rape, mm. child pornography. Yeah things like that, they're, hard very, yeah. Yeah, they're very hard to prosecute. I think FGM is, first of all, it's not visible for naked eye, it's a very, very invisible abuse. And um, I think the reason that we never had any, uh, what do you call it, uh, prosecution until two years ago, the first prosecution was actually, the first of all, the safeguarding and all the people that need to know about all sorts of abuse, didn't know nothing about it, didn't know about FGM. And the first thing is they never knew about the law that there was actually a law that this was classed under, you know, a children act, and this can go, somebody can go down for 14 years. None of the safeguard leads in any sector knew about it. It was just a, a survivors about 10, 15 years that brought this issue to the front that actually people sat and said, okay, this is a child abuse, let's talk about it. Before that, nobody wanted to talk about it because it was, you know, it wasn't our business and it wasn't visible to them. So it was very difficult, but I think forward to now, Everybody's getting training on it. All the professionals are getting training on it. It is being spotted, it is being reported. And I do believe there are cases that are coming out that's gonna literally going to take over the news and everything. The cases that I am aware of that are coming up very soon. And that is due to really down to professionals taking it seriously and learning about it and reporting when it's necessary. That's what we need. We need more exposure of what's happening. Yes. Yeah, million percent. Like, we need light shed on the fact that it's such a barbaric act. Yes. Because, let's face it, that's what FGM is, isn't it? It's barbaric. 
absolutely, absolutely. We need our professionals to be very brave, very human, and you know, very, you know, uh, 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 what do you call it, professional as well. We want them to have that confidence of being able to ask, being able to react, being able to log. We want them to go, you know, to do your job really, as simple as that. Do your job like as you would do and, and, and you know, as you will do in any other safeguarding issues that comes in front of you. You will deal with it straight away. You will not have issues of saying, oh, should I report this? Would I be seen racist? Would, am I intruded? You should never have anything like that when it concerns an innocent child. You should never have that. You should always have a heart of saying, I have a duty, duty to do my work and protect this child. That should be always your forefront, not nothing else. You know, whether you're a teacher or a nursery school um, assistant, these children, they don't want to tell you this information because they want their mum to get in trouble. Mm. So we need to use this information carefully. Yeah, and I think very sensitively as well. Exactly. Because they love their mum. Yeah. Professionals are also starting to understand is these women, when they cut their daughters, they're not doing it out of hate abuse and they, for them the community they come from it's not seen like that there's a different attachment for them there's a social aspect social acceptance norm uh, social norm part of it there's a social death part of it and what do i mean by social norm aspect of fdm is if you live in predominantly community that cut girls and you didn't cut your daughter which means there's a social death part of it which is no marriage no this you've been talked about you segregated everything but the social acceptance part of it is if you cut your daughter you should be seen as a you know very uh, pure very virgin and not most importantly the dowry goes high so there is a other things attached to it and we need to think about that children never see their kids uh, uh, their parents as an abusive because they haven't abused them before and this is their made to understand it's part of our culture so there is a really kids go through clash of culture where in the school they're told nobody should harm you nobody should touch your genitals nobody should do this well there's something like that happened to them how do i how do they disclose that because if they disclose they know their parents will go to, into trouble so there is a lot of things going on and I think what you said is true. It's cultural and not religious. No, it's never, ever religious. Yeah. yeah. People think that it's a, it's a religious thing. It's not in Torah. It's not in Bible. It's not in anybody's book of belief. It actually predates religion. In my country, we call it Gudnin or we call it Pharaonic. Pharaonic means it's a Pharaoh's cut. Literally, it's the Pharaohs who introduced it in part, most part of East African countries. So we call it that. So it's never religious at all, 100%. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for yes. opening up to us. <laughs> honestly, like you've honestly impacted both of us. Yeah. Um, before we um, bring this to a close, we always yeah. do affirmations at the end of um, our podcast episodes. Okay. Um, if we do one each, would you try and do one at the end if you could? Think yes, yes, I'll give it a go. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna do mine based on what I've learned today. Yeah. So today, tomorrow, and moving forward in my career, I'm gonna yeah. ask sensitive questions, and in turn, I'm gonna receive responses that can help people. Okay. Wow, that's really good, Rach. What's yours? Okay. Um. Okay, I am worthy of respect and I deserve pleasure and bliss. Oh, how do you beat that? 
<laughs> you beat that. That's a good one. <laughs> How do you beat that? Um, oh my God, I don't even know what to say now. Um, I'm a woman, respect my body and my thoughts and my, my core of me, just respect me and don't, just, just respect a woman, simple as that. That's what, I'm, what I wanna say, respect me and my body. Yeah, that is a very, very strong message. Our bodies deserve respect. Exactly, our bodies are temples. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is our temple. And I think uh, uh, a women's body are not respected and it's um, the whole world wants to control it, wants to use it, wants to do this, wants to do that purely because of our body. And I think we deserve a respect. We do not go and abuse other bodies and do this, do this to that. So for us women, for, for once, respect women and their bodies. Wow, that is a really powerful message. So empowering. Thank you so much. We are so grateful. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for you too taking an initiative and wanting to talk like this and opening to the other conversation. This is a journey for all of us. And you are part of that journey. You're part of progress because yeah. talking about things creates progress. And the change, progress creates, you know, repercussions of changes, good ones that, you know, um, creates waves around the globe. So thank you very much for what you are doing as well. You are wonderful. Thank you. And let us know when the premiere is for, your, for the movie coming out. I will definitely <laughs> let you know all. I will do a big Instagram live and I will let you all know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can't wait. Make sure that you are one of the characters yeah i can't wait to see you on the i i'm pretty much sure i'm gonna have a cameo role i don't know what that looks like i don't know what that looks like yeah but i'll definitely it's like erin rekovich the writer was there so i'm gonna be in there somehow i don't know how yeah, yeah. i don't mind dancing with whoever the actor is going to be that would be amazing yeah. <laughs> but you'll be fabulous anyway <laughs> i like dancing so it'll be amazing to dance with <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, what can I say? I'm just a typical crazy lunatic slash mom and slash typical woman, I would say. Yeah, yeah. 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 An yeah. inspiring woman. Yeah, very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Bye.